You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church Podcast. Uh, we've been attending Eltham Baptist for a couple of years now. And you know, one of the things that attracted us to the church was the very strong mission emphasis. The very first Sunday, I think there was a guest speaker from Hellenic Ministries, maybe. And, uh, and just that recognition very quickly that there was a real strong mission focus here, both for overseas mission, but also for mission here in, in Eltham and in, the, and in Melbourne and, and the surrounding area. And that was what really uh, resonated with us. Ironically, the reason we had avoided coming to Eltham for years was because there were so many missionaries here. And uh, I guess it's very hard to get one without the other. It's hard to get a church with a passion for missions without having some missionaries there. So um, anyway, we are here now. And as Stu explained, uh, we're with Wycliffe. So this morning you're getting another missionary message. So I hope that's, uh, I hope that's okay. As, as Stu explained, we're with, um, Wycliffe. we're with Wycliffe Bible Translators Australia. We're seconded to the seed company. There are differences. Please don't worry about them. They're not important for this morning. The differences between the two different organisations. Uh, we are all working together to do Bible translation. The reason that's significant is because if in some of my PowerPoint slides or in a video that I show it talks about seed company, please don't be confused. We're still talking Bible translation and we are... Uh, seed company is an affiliate of Wycliffe, so we're still under the same Wycliffe um, banner, so that's fine. When Stu Hunt preaches... It is very solid, typically very, very solid biblical teaching. He, he takes a passage and he really digs into it and we get some very solid biblical teaching out of that. You're not getting that this morning. Uh, and I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm saying I'm hoping it's an acceptable thing because this message is squeezed in between those really solid biblical teaching that my uh, less solid message will be okay because it's balanced by those other things that are solider. But this morning, I'm just going to be sharing about the work of Bible translation and about the work that God is doing through the work of Bible translation around the world. So be prepared. Before I start about just telling stories, I want to share one verse uh, from Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation confuses me. I know there's at least one person here who thinks he understands it. I struggle with the book of Revelation and I find much of it very hard to interpret. And this chapter, chapter 7, is confusing. There's stuff in there I'm like, I'm not sure exactly what they're referring to there. This verse is simple and clear. It says, After this I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. The verse continues... Now, most of us actually know this verse. There's no confusion with the verse. There's a list in there from every people, from every nation, from every tribe. And most of us stop there and say, oh, yeah, he's talking about everyone. And we somehow miss the language. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but it's actually in red. So that, yeah. Um, The language in here, the fact that it says every people, every nation, every tribe, every language tells me that language is important to God. And that's important to us. To know that language is important to God is important to us in Bible translation because we are involved in helping to translate the Bible into every language and helping this 
this prophecy be fulfilled. And so it's, it's, uh, it's reassuring for us to know that, that this is part of God's work as well. And so just as a starting point, I, I want to look at how are we going with that task of translating the Bible into every language? You know, we talk about every people, every nation, every tribe, every language. How are we going with that? So just, I do not want to bore you with statistics and graphs. I'm going to be quick running through this. This is uh, a pie chart of the languages in the world. There's around about 7,000 languages spoken in the world. It's actually... Latest count as of, uh, I think it was September, October last year, was a bit over that, about 7,090. But roughly 7,000, the number goes up and down. And as you can see from the, the, the chart here, 636 have the full Bible translated, another 1,400 and a bit have the New Testament, and then the, the ones down the bottom have either some portions are already done, or work has at least started, even if nothing is yet available. But the bit that's sort of significant for us all of it's significant for us, but the bit we're focusing on is that the remaining red piece there, the 1,671 at last count, that do not yet have any of the Bible translated. So these are, these are languages that are recognised to have a need for translation. These people don't speak any other language that they can understand the Bible clearly in. So they need a translation, but nothing's been started yet. Have a closer look at what those languages, those numbers mean so this is the breakdown of where those languages are divided throughout the world. You see, in the Pacific, uh, which includes Australia, 346. Now, some of them are right here in Australia. Some of the Australian Aboriginal languages in the outback still have none of the Bible translated. And so those people cannot actually understand clearly the Bible they have available. Most of them are in Papua New Guinea, Vanuatu, Solomon Islands, and the little atolls scattered across the Pacific. Uh, where uh, Calvin and Roslyn were in uh, Europe there, 42 languages still without any part of the Bible. For Ros and I, the, the number that's of most significance is that 642 in Africa, because that's where our specific focus of our work is. So we're most interested in that 642. As being languages that still need to have Bible translation started. Of course, all the others who have it started still want to have it finished. So it's, there's a lot to do. To put these numbers in a slightly different way, there are approximately 160 million people who do not have any of God's word in their language. Now, I had that written out, just 160 million, in, and it didn't look like much. When you actually put all the zeros on the end of it, and you realise each one of them is 11111, it adds up to being a lot of people. 160 million people, an additional 1.5 billion, that's a whole lot more zeros, which I didn't add, only have access to some of the Bible in the language they understand best. So the, the point is, uh, there is much has already been done, but there's still a lot more that needs to be done. So the task is not yet finished, but we are well on the way. Uh, that's enough of graphs and numbers. Uh, it's one thing to talk about numbers. You know, we can say, oh, there's 1,671 languages that don't have the Bible translated yet. And then we, we, we start work and we tick those names off the list. That's great. But actually, the more important question for me, and I think is more important for all of us, is does it actually make a difference? When we tick that name, that language name off the list, does it make a difference? Does having the Bible in their language make a difference for the people who speak that language? Because if not, then we're probably not achieving what we're trying to achieve. So this morning, I want to talk a little bit more about um, the difference that having the Bible makes, or does it make? really asking the question. And I want to look at just one project. This is in Zambia. Um, it's 
It's one translation project, actually five languages, Mashi, Shanjo, Makoma, Fwe, and Kwangwa. In uh, Western Zambia, there's people groups, of course, people, languages don't get divided quite evenly by uh, national borders. So these languages spread into uh, Angola, Namibia, Botswana, even Zimbabwe a bit. Has anyone been to Zambia? Yes, you guys have. No? A couple. Okay. Has it, so you've probably seen Victoria Falls and some of the... Yeah, very good. Uh, this is, these, these are in the western province of Zambia. It's actually a very remote part of the country. Zambia is a... Parts of Zambia are relatively developed for African... Uh, yeah, for African, African uh, countries, but western province is less developed than the rest of the country. The, for those of you who've seen the Victoria Falls, you know it's a very big waterfall. That's the Zambezi River, which starts up in DR uh, Congo and runs down through Zambia and in Victoria Falls. In the dry season, it's a huge river. In the wet season, the river up in the western province here is about 70 kilometres wide. So that's a massive river. There's a big floodplain that it spreads across, and until last year, they had never managed to build a road that would uh, to go from across that river that would survive more than one wet season. They'd build the road, it would get washed away, they'd build it again, etc. This last year they've actually built one that survived the wet season, so we'll see if it lasts a couple more years. But the, what is, the, the result has been that the western province has been very, very um, undeveloped compared to the rest of the country. The healthcare there is terrible. Average life expectancy about 29 years, which means that Obviously, a lot of people live beyond 29, but also a lot of people die much younger than 29. So it's a terrible healthcare system. Education system's fairly dysfunctional. Uh, talking to one of the teachers there, he said it takes him about a week to walk from where he teaches into the town to collect his paycheck, and then he walks a week back to where he teaches and teaches for about two weeks and then starts the return trip to collect his paycheck again. So you can imagine how somewhat dysfunctional the education system is. Um, and so, yeah, and, and they're small people groups. You know, the population there, 73,000. That's the population of all five of these language groups combined. Some of them have less than 10,000 speakers. A couple are a little bit bigger than that. But they are fairly marginalised people as a result. There's been some church planting efforts in this area over the years, from a long time ago and continuing. But the, the effectiveness has also always been limited because the language barrier is so huge. And so it's very hard to really communicate what the, the good news is because of that language barrier. So when the translation started here, the question was asked, you know, where do we start? And the church has really requested help with evangelism, church planting, and then discipleship. So they said that they wanted the, uh, the Gospel of Luke and the Jesus film to help with evangelism, and then the book of Mark and the book of Acts to help with sort of that follow-up um, discipleship stuff. The work started in... That work started about six years ago, and, and the initial things have already finished. So Luke's finished, the, book, uh, the Jesus film's finished, the book of Mark's been finished. So six years down the track, we can look and say, did it actually make a difference for those people? Having those parts of the Bible translated, has it actually helped them and changed their lives in any way? I just want to look at a couple of, um, couple of differences that it has made. First of all, an improved understanding and acceptance of themselves. As I said, these are small language groups, and they tend to have a very... Typical of very small language groups, they have a very, very low self-esteem. 
the, the, the major groups tend to be critical of them in this part of the world very much so, uh, to the point where they're actually ashamed of who they are, ashamed of their language, and they'll pretend that they belong to a, a different tribe because they're, they're ashamed of the tribe that they're actually part of. So this is one of the quotes that I collected from uh, Pastor Enoch. He's one of the translators there. He said, this Bible translation is changing our families. We used to be ashamed to speak Shanjo because we were told it's just a monkey language. Now we know our language has status and dignity. Now, actually, as an English speaker, it's impossible to really understand this because English is sort of a very high status language. And the idea that you genuinely believe that you're somehow slightly subhuman because your language is kind of an animal language, we just can't even comprehend that, that understanding. But when these guys realised, it was actually the very, very start of the project when they saw their language written down for the very first time and realised that their language can have an alphabet, it can be in a book, and that God actually speaks my language, that was life-changing for them. And they, they were like, you know what? We're real people. We are as good as anybody else. And it made a huge difference. So the first thing that was a very clear change was an improved understanding and acceptance of themselves. The second thing, improved relationships with each other. Again, a quote from one of the guys. This is from the Macoma team. We see each other differently now and are able to forgive much more easily. God's word in the Macoma language has affected our lives. There is more acceptance of other believers who are attending churches of other denominations. You know, the, the, the rivalry between denominations was huge, largely because of very diverse interpretations of the Bible that they had in English or in Lawsy, which is the regional language, and not really interpretations, misinterpretations of the Bible that they had it caused all these massive divisions between the different denominations. When they actually had it in their own language and started to really understand what it meant, it totally changed the way they related to each other. They began to be able to identify the commonalities rather than the differences, and it made a huge difference. So, um, improved relationship and acceptance of themselves and then improved relationship with God. That was the third thing, improved relationship with God. Again, um, another guy from the Makoma team, he said, we are happy because we now know how to pray in Makoma. In the past, we prayed in Lawsy, which the original language, because we thought God did not understand Makoma. Now that we have the Gospel of Luke in our language, we understand that God not only speaks Makoma, but he understands our words when we pray in Makoma. Now, of course, prayer, prayer for us is a fairly intimate thing. You know, we really can share with God deeply how we feel and, and, and what we're hoping for and what we're struggling with. When you don't think that God speaks your language and therefore you're restricted to praying in another language that you actually barely understand yourself, your prayers are going to be very much surface level. You know, you can learn a language. I mean, I, I've tried to learn a few languages in my life, not very successfully. And you can get to a point where you can ask for a coffee or you can ask, you know, where's the bus stop? And if that's the limit of your prayers, then obviously a relationship with God is going to be a fairly shallow relationship. When you realise that God actually speaks your language and that I can pray to him in, in my language and therefore share all the the good and the bad and the, the dreams and the hopes and, and God understands and responds, that totally changes the relationship you can have with God. So 
yeah, that third thing was the improved relationship with God. And the last one, helps in church growth and evangelism. Now, this was what the churches asked for. They said, we want a Bible translation project to help us with planting churches, evangelism, and then discipleship afterwards. So helps, helping with church growth and evangelism. Those other three things, they were, they were side benefits. that they, The church itself wasn't really expecting, it didn't realise was a need, but was recognised along the way as being a, a benefit that had come. Did it help with church growth and evangelism? The first time the Jesus film was shown in the Kwamashi language was on a wall in the guest house in Shangombo. It was intended as a trial viewing so the small group of reviewers could determine if the story was clear. Almost 500 people came and half of them responded to this trial by indicating that they wanted to accept Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. So what happens with, when they're doing the translation, there was a team of about six people that were involved with actually translating the text of the Jesus film. And then when they dubbed the... So they have the film already and then they, they dubbed their own language over the, the English version. They try and get the lip sync as close as they can so it doesn't look like one of those bad Japanese uh, movies. And, and they actually do a remarkably good job, you know, to see this, these movies really speaking, you know, very close to the lip sync thing. And so there's about, you know, half a dozen translators, and then a team of about another 15 people in addition to them were involved in the, the voiceover dubbing to make the, 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 the Kwamashi translation version of the Jesus film. And so when they'd finished, they said, let's just, the, the group of us, the 20 people, sit down and watch it and make sure that we're happy with it before we show it to everyone else. But somehow the word got out that they're going to show this thing for the first time. 500 people show up. Now they're watching a screen, it's about half the size of that, on the wall in this guest house, a little projector and a little Bluetooth speaker over there. 500 people came. The thing is, this was not the first time they'd seen the Jesus film. They've used the Jesus film as an evangelism tool for years, using English version, using the Lawsy version. Very little response. Well, yeah, whatever. So this is not the first time they've seen the technology and they're awed by, wow, there's a film. But this is the first time they understood it because it was in their language. 500 people come, half of them respond and say, that's the Jesus that we want to know. It's not that they've never heard of Jesus before, they just never understood who he was and why he was significant to them before. So did it help with uh, church growth and evangelism? Absolutely. It helped with all of those things that we've listed. And, you know, this is not, this is not an exceptional project by any means. This is, a, this is a typical project rather than an exceptional project. Seed Company has been involved now with about 1,400, just, just almost 1,400 projects around the world, with different language groups. And I would say that this type of results are actually typical. Different issues, because every different context is different. They're, they're dealing with different... They're starting with a different context on the ground, so there's different things that, that God wants to teach those people and help them with. But to see changes happen in those communities, that is typical. And we say, wow. Well, no, we shouldn't say wow. Let me look at another verse. This is from Isaiah. The rain and snow come down from the heavens and stay on the ground to water the earth. They cause the grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer and bread for the hungry. It is the same with my word. I send it out and it always produces fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to and it will prosper everywhere I send it. You know, we experience the truth of this in our own lives. When we spend time in the Word of God, spend time in the Bible, whether it's reading, whether it's actually reading the Bible, 
or whether it's listening to it on a, you know, iPod or some sort of audio thing, whether it's listening to scripture in song, music. You know, there's different ways that we engage in God's word. But if we spend time in God's word and we actually allow God to speak to us through his word and then we respond to God as he speaks to us, it changes us. And I think we've all probably experienced that in our life. It is even more dramatically obvious. The change is, almost, is, is more dramatically obvious when someone is hearing that word for the very first time. We've, there's actually very little in the Bible that we've not read or heard at some point in our lives. For these guys, this is the first time they've actually understood it and heard it. And so the change is much more obvious. Um, and honestly, it's exciting for us, and I know there's other Wycliffe people here, it's exciting for us to be a part of that. Um, and it's exciting for us to witness that and to see those changes when it takes place. So uh, for us, that's, that's one of the most rewarding parts of what we do. It helps remind us that the challenges we go through and the, the stresses that uh, life throws at us are worth it because the end result is, is effective. Now, I, no good missionary presentation would be complete without a, a video of at least some other culture doing something. So I am going to finish off with a video. Has anyone been to Ethiopia? Yes, good. Two? Ethiopia is probably my favourite African country. Namibia is a very close second. Anyone been to Namibia? No. So we can't compare? Someone said yes. Anyone been to both Ethiopia and Namibia? No. All right. Totally different, but two of my, my favourite African countries. Roz hasn't got to share either of them with me yet, so we'll have to work on that. But um, Ethiopia, most of us remember Ethiopia from the 1980s World Vision, there's children starving in Ethiopia things. Ethiopia actually has a, a very long history, other than world vision and famines, it has a very long history with Christianity. Um, dating way back to the Old Testament, King Solomon has a guest come, the Queen of Sheba. Sheba was the ancient kingdom, or queendom, what is that word, <laughs> of Ethiopia. Now, Sheba was a bigger area than the modern-day Ethiopia, but the Queen of Sheba was what is today Ethiopia. Uh, the Queen of Sheba visited King Solomon. Now, Ethiopian uh, myth, folklore, has it that the son of that union, now I don't want to go into the whole thing about that, but the son of that union became the first patriarch of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, which is an ancient church. Um, later in the Old Testament, there's the story of Jeremiah, who's thrown in a well because the king doesn't like him very much. And he's rescued from the well by a court official, and it just a little note there says, who was Ethiopian. So there's this connection that Ethiopian is, a, is an official in the Israeli, Israelite court, but he's Ethiopian. So obviously, there's still, a, even you know, that much later on through the story, there's still a close connection between Ethiopia and Israel. And of course, in the New Testament, there's a story of Philip who gets sort of whisked away and he goes and he, he meets this Ethiopian eunuch in his chariot who's trying to read the book of Isaiah. He's confused. Ethiopia, uh, sorry, Philip explains to him that the person Isaiah is talking about in his book is actually Jesus. The Ethiopian says, I want to be baptised. And then Philip baptises him. The Ethiopian goes back to his home. 
And that's where the Ethiopian church shifted from being uh, Old Testament monotheistic Judaism to New Testament Christianity. And the Ethiopian Orthodox church shifted from being, you know, to, to, to a Christian church rather than a Judaistic church. So there's a long history of Christianity in Ethiopia. And Ethiopia also, though, has this long history of persecution and, and suffering. It's a long history of uh, Islamic influence coming down from the Middle East, uh, continuing today. And during the, uh, was it 1974, Ethiopia became a communist country. 1974 to 1991, Ethiopia was a communist country. And of course, communists at that point especially were very anti-Christian, very actively trying to oppress, suppress the Christian church, closed most of the churches, um, burnt many of the buildings. And I've heard stories about these huge um, bonfires they lit to try and to burning all the Bibles, all the Christian literature to try and destroy Christianity in the country. Most of the pastors were, were thrown into prison and stuff. That, the communist era ended in 1991. Ten years later, 2001, this language group, the GAMO, which is a much bigger group. See, this is a million speakers of this language compared to those other ones from Zambia, which was 73,000 total between five groups. This is more than a million from one language group. In 2001, the GAMO started their Bible translation project. And again, they also started with Luke and the Jesus film. Now, that's not a standard. It's every community is free to choose where they want to start. But these two stories just happened to choose the same thing. At 2005, the Jesus film was finished. Very, very effective tool in church growth and evangelism. And the church straight away said, we're not stopping there. We want the whole New Testament, in fact, the whole Bible. So they, uh, they went straight on with the New Testament. 2010, they finished the, the New Testament. And then there's a, well, finished the translation, and there's a lot of cleaning up. It's 2012, they had the dedication for the New Testament. And there's uh, more than 10,000 people showed up for the, uh, for the dedication event. And that's what the video is going to be about soon. This is just a couple of photos from the community. Um, one of the most significant moving moments in the dedication was when the, the lead translator on the project is the older guy in the photo there. Polis, his name is. That's 70, 70 plus now. I guess he's 75 now. Um, he was sharing about the field where they're having the dedication. There's 10,000 people gathered on this big field. He said this was the exact field where all those years ago... They had the big bonfires and all our Bibles got burnt, all our books got burnt. And he said this was the exact field where the communists dragged him out of the crowd, made him kneel down and said, renounce your faith. And he refused. So he was beaten and beaten and beaten and refused to renounce his faith. So they eventually threw him in jail and left him there for several years. So it was a very, very emotional day for these people as they celebrated, but with this sort of, with this history. One of the guests who was there was a South African uh, singer-songwriter named Brenton Brown. Have any of you heard of Brenton Brown? We do some of his songs, and we probably sing some of his songs here. You know, he was a guest at the dedication, and afterwards he, he put this video, this little DVD, sort of shared some of his reflections on the day and also the song that the event inspired. You know, it was inspired by the event. But the footage here of the crowds and everything is is actual footage from the dedication event. And I want to share it because it actually shows some of the genuine enthusiasm and excitement of these people as they celebrate finally getting the New Testament in their language for the first time. So, you know, play the video now.
In June of 2012, the Gamma people got the Bible translated in their own language for the first time. We almost take for granted that um, we experience when God speaks through his scriptures that the creator of the heavens and the earth, uh, the almighty God, the supreme being, is talking to us through these scriptures. It's quite hard not to be stirred by it because you get to see on the faces of the Gamma people experiencing this for the first time, not just the acknowledgement of the truth of the scriptures, that ring of authority, the ring of heaven that God's truth has, but then uh, the, also the hope that this Lord of the heavens and the earth, the maker of the universe, the one who made us and made our families, made all that we see around us is actually speaking to us right now. And that he's taken special care to address us through these scriptures, that he's taken special care to put together this extraordinary book we call the Bible and to not just um, communicate truth to us, but to communicate it um, every time we read it. Uh, it's living, it's powerful, it's able to change us, and uh, he's able to change us. And it's efforts like this by the Sea Company that make me just applaud them and cheer them on. Go Sea Company, go Bible translators. We know what you're doing is not easy. We know what you're doing can be difficult at times, it's time consuming, but go for it, don't stop. Everything will fade, the heavens
Uh, the the Gemo, after that, they went straight on to the Old Testament, which is, if you ever looked at your Bible, is more than half. It's about that. So, uh, and New Testaments used to take about 25 years. In five years, they've finished their Old Testament. We'll have a dedication for that next year. So, uh, Ros is determined to be at that one. So we'll see what happens. But uh, yeah, that will be a bigger celebration, I think. That's it for me. You know, there's a lot of Wycliffe people in the church here. I'm, we're not the only ones. If you have questions, please just come and if about Bible translation, about, okay, how can we be involved in something? Uh, Kelvin and Rosalind are sharing tonight. I'm not even going to try and name everyone because I'll guarantee I'll miss someone. But uh, just come and chat and ask us questions. We, we are all happy to tell stories about Bible translation. So. Thank you. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.net.